This message was shared from the pulpit at Good News Baptist Church in Chesapeake, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 16. It is 100 seconds to midnight. At least so says the board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. Uh, They are the keepers of the doomsday clock, which is supposed to indicate how close we are to the complete annihilation of mankind. Uh, Each year, this board sets the doomsday clock based on how desperate they consider the present state of our world to be. This January, they announced that the clock would remain at 100 seconds to midnight. That's just over a minute and a half until mankind is no more. Though, I don't pretend to know what that means, especially since the clock was also set at 100 seconds to midnight last year. And it only moved 20 seconds between January of 2019 and January of 2020. Actually, a look at the clock's history confuses me even more, because in 1947, at its inception, the clock was set at seven minutes to midnight. In 1953, it was only two minutes. And then, in 1969, it dropped back to ten minutes. And you can see some more of the history there on the screen. Whatever else this illustrates, it definitely illustrates that I don't understand how this clock works. Now, I don't want to mock everything about this. I I may agree or disagree with the specific things that are causing this board to make these decisions, Um, but I understand the board is simply trying to draw attention to what they consider to be deeply concerning situations or trends in our world. But one thing is clear. This is no doomsday clock. It does not indicate how much time this earth has left. Neither the board of the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists nor any other group on Earth can tell us when the end is coming. But in reality, we could say in one sense there is a doomsday clock. At least there is a time when the world will come to an end. And there is a keeper who knows when that end will come. When I say the word apocalypse, what do you think of? You might think of a nuclear apocalypse. Maybe you think of a a climate apocalypse. But likely, you think of some scenario in which the Earth, at least all of her human inhabitants, is completely annihilated in some sort of horrific fashion. But do you know the origin of the word apocalypse and how it came to mean that in our language? Well, let me read the first few words of the book of Revelation to you in Greek. The words we read at the beginning of Revelation 1.1 in our English Bible were translated from these Greek words. Apocalypsis Iesu Christu. It means the revelation or unveiling of Jesus Christ. And that phrase is the basis for the name of our series, Christ Unveiled. Uh, It's been a couple of months since the last message, but we've been considering the book of Revelation with a specific focus, seeing what the book teaches us about the person of Jesus Christ. 
After all, it is the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, the revelation of Jesus Christ. But isn't it interesting that a word that refers to the revealing of the person of Jesus Christ has come to mean, in modern parlance, complete devastation, catastrophic destruction, widespread annihilation. I think the fact that those two ideas are so connected is actually very instructive. Over the last few messages, we have come to discover some of the reasons that the revelation of Jesus Christ is so destructive and so full of wrath. We've seen that the judgment and ruin that Jesus Christ brings to the earth are tied to his character in some very meaningful ways. And we're going to see that once again this evening. Turn your attention with me, please, to Revelation 16. Remember that at this point, the earth is already in large part a smoldering wasteland. Chapters 6 and 7 saw the opening of seven seals. At chapters 8 through 11, the sounding of seven trumpets. And each time a seal was broken, each time one of those trumpets pealed, more wrath, more destruction. Satan and his beast have risen, and a great final battle approaches. Now, seven angels bear seven last plagues. And Revelation 15.1 tells us that in them, in these plagues, is filled up the wrath of God. The completion of God's wrath, the full measure of his wrath, is finished with these seven plagues. Read, read along with me, please, as I read aloud from Revelation 16. Please follow along, beginning in verse 1, as we see the earth wasted. Scripture says, And I heard a great voice out of the temple saying to the seven angels, Go your ways and pour out the vials of the wrath of God upon the earth. And the first went and poured out his vial upon the earth, and there fell a noisome and grievous sore upon the men which had the mark of the beast and upon them which worshipped his image. And the second angel poured out his vial upon the sea, and it became as the blood of a dead man, and every living soul died in the sea. And the third angel poured out his vial upon the rivers and fountains of waters, and they became blood. Skip down with me to verse 8, and the pouring out of the fourth vial. And the fourth angel poured out his vial upon the sun, and power was given unto him to scorch men with fire, and men were scorched with great heat and blasphemed the name of God, which hath power over these plagues. And they repented not to give him glory. And the fifth angel poured out his vial upon the seat of the beast and his kingdom was full of darkness. And they gnawed their tongues for pain and blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and repented not of their deeds. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. After this point, Satan begins to gather his army in a place called Armageddon, a name that is probably familiar to all of us. Literally, the hill of Megiddo, a place there in Israel. He's gathering his army together. And then in verse 17, and the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne saying, it is done. 
And there were voices and thunders and lightnings. And there was a great earthquake such as was not since men were upon the earth. So mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away. And the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. So just a quick summary. An epidemic of boils. Water turned to blood. A sun burning powerfully enough to scorch and injure A darkness so great it causes physical pain. A world record-setting earthquake. Cities around the world collapsing. Islands sinking. Mountains falling. And 80-pound chunks of ice falling from the sky. That sounds like apocalypse to me. Let's put ourselves in that time. Take a quick world tour with me. Let's take a stroll down a beautiful white beach in the Caribbean. Except, the azure waters have turned blood red. And dead fish and other sea creatures wash up on the shore. There's not a single sunbather because they're afraid of the blistering sun. Let's stop by New York City. Ah, but there are no more skyscrapers. They've been reduced to rubble. And Manhattan is sinking into the ocean. Take a trip to the Himalayas and gaze with me at the empty sky where Mount Everest once stood. Try to imagine what it used to look like as we dodge boulder-like hail falling all around us. That's just a snapshot, imagination, of what it's like in the world on Earth in that day. The world has been effectively wasted. God has chosen to destroy it. In fact, the time is coming when the whole thing will go up in flames. But why? Well, the world is broken. Romans 8.22 tells us that under the curse and the effects of man's sin, the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. Sin has taken its awful toll, not only on the lives of men and women, but on the earth itself. It is condemned. Its days are numbered. Let me introduce you to a figure who represents what is most to blame for the state of the world when we get here. Turn with me to Revelation 17 and meet Babylon the Great. There have been a couple of mentions of Babylon up to this point, but chapters 17 and 18 give us a much better look. Revelation 17, beginning in verse 1. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, and I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit upon a scarlet-covered beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns, 
And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. And upon her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. And I saw the woman drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. Now, immediately the question arises, who is this woman or city or whatever we're actually looking at here? When John wrote this letter, Babylon was no longer a world power or a significant city. So as with many things in this book, there is clearly symbolism here. And as soon as we get into symbolism in the book of Revelation, there are going to be a lot of ideas out there about what all this might symbolize. And some have suggested specific applications, saying this is a certain city, a certain organization. Rather than trying to prove or disprove any of that, I want to focus on the general ideology and culture and lifestyle that this woman represents. She stands for the seduction of a flesh-saturated world. She's opulent, seductive, rich, irreverent, and opposed to the faithful followers of Christ. And all the world is infatuated with all she offers. They are drunk with her wine. And the drunk are easily fooled, and easily blinded, and easily led astray. Is this not a telling picture of the world we live in today? We live in a world and in a country drunk with pleasure. The overwhelming religion of our world today is hedonism. If it feels good, it is good. If it brings me pleasure, it is right. Today, this profane, lustful, greedy woman sits comfortably on her throne, supported by the antichrist powers at work in our world. And her power and influence will only grow when the beast is revealed and the idolatrous worship of the beast becomes widespread. Her riches and her sway over the world will only grow until one day Babylon will fall. The destruction is swift and devastating and complete. Revelation 18 tells us about it. I want to read a few excerpts for you. Verse 9, And the kings of the earth, who had committed fornication and lived deliciously with her, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. Whether the language there is intended to be taken literally, as in, in 60 minutes, judgment falls, which it may be, or it's just colorful language to say the judgment is coming swiftly, we see that judgment falls, and it is sudden. When God sends his judgment, it takes people by surprise. It is quick. It's stunning. 
Verse 15, the merchants of these things, talking about different wares, different things, even in our, our world today, um, that would be a part of the market. The merchants of these things, which were made rich by her, shall stand afar off for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster... And all the company and ships and sailors and as many as trade by sea stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein were made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness, for in one hour is she made desolate. There is no more music, no more art, no more industry, no more marriage in Babylon. The cultural and political center of the earth has been torn out. The world system has been crippled. Nothing, no one, no organization or political power stands a chance in the face of the apocalypse, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. And we should all take warning. But you might say, what is the message? What is the warning for us? What does any of this have to do with me today? What well, is a simple but compelling message? Uh, turn with me, if you would, please, to 1 John chapter 2. We're given a warning there about our attitude towards the world. And as we think about Babylon, we think about... The, the ideology, the culture, everything going on there. It's a picture of the world system. What is going on in our world today? What is driving things in our world today? In 1 John 2, verses 15 to 17, we are told, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. The things of Babylon the Great. If any man love the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. These are the fuel on which Babylon the Great, the world system, runs these are they on which she makes the nations drunk. If she can make them drunk with lust, with greed, with pride, then they are hers. And ultimately, they are the devil's. If, if we are infatuated, if we are caught up in these things, if those around us are infatuated, caught up with drunk on sin and pleasure, on lust and greed and pride... They are not them, their own. They think that they are controlling their own destiny. But they belong to the world. They belong to the devil. Beware the seduction of the world. 
it can and it will offer whatever pleasure most appeals to you. But the world and all the sinful things on which it runs will come to an end. And that's the point of Revelation 17 and 18. All of this stuff, all of this sin, all of this lust, all of this fleshly everything that's running our world today, it's all coming to an end. Peter, too, addresses this in 2 Peter 3. He speaks there of those who scoff at the idea of Jesus' return. And he says in verse 5, For this they are willingly ignorant of, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of the water and in the water. In other words, who made this world? It was God. He shaped it. He has control over its creation. He also has control over its destruction. Whereby, Peter says, the world that then was, being overflowed with water, perished. But the heavens and the earth, which are now, by the same word, are kept in store, reserved unto fire against the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. In Genesis 6, there came a day when God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually and he sent a catastrophic worldwide flood and he wiped out almost all of the earth's population. He reshaped the world. But there's coming a day when a greater disaster will befall this earth as the whole thing will be demolished. Peter goes on. He says, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Remember, alas, alas, in one hour, judgment has come. It's a thief in the night. In the which the heavens shall pass away with a great noise, and the elements shall melt with fervent heat. The earth also and the works that are therein shall be burned up, seeing then that all these things shall be dissolved. What manner of persons ought ye to be in all holy conversation and godliness, looking for and hasting unto the coming of the day of God, wherein the heavens being on fire shall be dissolved and the elements shall melt with fervent heat? Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth, wherein dwelleth righteousness. All these things shall be dissolved. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. So take warning. How foolish for us to get enamored by the flattery and seduction of a sin-soaked world. The clock is ticking down. One day there will be new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. But this earth is condemned. The demolish date is set. So don't get too attached. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. That's what Peter says in 1 Peter 2.11. We are strangers and pilgrims traveling through Vanity Fair on our way to the celestial city. And I'd love to take some time to read from the Pilgrim's Progress when it talks about the Pilgrim's growing, going through Vanity Fair. Because I think it's very telling, it's very helpful 
It's very instructive as we think about ourselves passing through the world we live in today. Surrounded on every side by pleasures that are offered to us. Things that could easily draw our attention and slow us down and get our eyes off of the eventual goal. How much of what you are grasping tightly today is just going to be dissolved? Have you become enamored of the harlot that is this world system? Proverbs 5 warns us about the strange woman. You might say, what does that have to do with what we're talking about? Well, take a look at the challenges here. And yes, these are warnings, literal warnings, about the danger of tangling with loose and immoral men and women. But they are also a picture of the dangers of being drawn away by the things of this world. Proverbs 5.1, My son, Solomon says, attend unto my wisdom and bow thine ear to my understanding that thou mayest regard discretion and that thy lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of a strange woman drop as an honeycomb and her mouth is smoother than oil, but her end is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold on hell. Lest thou shouldest ponder the path of life, her ways are movable that thou canst not know them. Hear me now, therefore, O ye children, and depart not from the words of my mouth. Remove thy way far from her, and come not nigh the door of her house, lest thou give thine honor unto others, and thy years unto the cruel, lest strangers be filled with thy wealth, and thy labors be in the house of a stranger, and thou mourn at the last when thy flesh and thy body are consumed, and say, How have I hated instruction? And my heart despised reproof, and have not obeyed the voice of my teachers, nor inclined mine ear to them that instructed me. What a picture that can serve of the dangers of falling for this world system. Sweeter than honey, smooth like oil, the call to us. But her end is bitter as wormwood. The lustful, greedy, prideful culture of our world calls to us today with a sweet, smooth plea Come and taste. Come and enjoy. But she will consume your flesh and body and will one day be consumed herself. And there will be many who will be too drunk with the wine of pleasure to realize that the end is coming until judgment is upon them. They will be too drunk with the sin and the pleasure and the lust of this world to realize that Jesus Christ is calling to them. And only too late will they realize that they've been lulled into that sleep by the pleasures of this world. There's a danger here for God's people as well. It is certainly true that in that day, when judgment falls, there will be many in this world who will be shocked, overwhelmed, when all of a sudden all that they've been living for is gone. 
the world has been their God. Their pleasure has been their God. The temporary things around us have been their God, and all of a sudden it's all gone. And only then will they wake up to realize their foolishness. But isn't it true that we as believers can fall asleep too? Jesus Christ is the destroyer of this world. Yes, he had a hand in its creation, but he's also going to oversee its destruction. How foolish we are to fall for its flattery, to drink of that wine, to sell ourselves for something that will quickly slip right through our fingers. Beware the flattery of Babylon the Great. Don't drink her wine. Remember Lot's wife. What was Lot's wife's problem? Where was her heart? Back in the city of destruction. Will we be raptured one day and our heart will be stuck back here? Because we've spent all of our time investing, 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 and then it's all gone. Praise the Lord that he's gracious enough that even if we are foolish enough to live a life like that, if we've trusted in Christ, by his grace we're still saved. But what a shame to leave what we've invested in behind when that day comes. And to weep tears of bitterness as we see the earth destroyed. Because so much of what we lived for is wrapped up in this world. When Satan came to tempt Jesus, um, many people have have drawn the parallel between that and the passage we looked at in 1 John, where there's the the temptation to the lust of the flesh with the temptation to turn the, turn the stones into bread. Uh, there's the temptation to the pride of life, to go up and stand on top of the temple and, and show off by throwing himself down and the angels would catch him. And then there's the tempta- temptation to the, to the lust of the eyes. But you think about what was Satan doing? And I love because this parallel is drawn in, in the Pilgrim's Progress as they're going through Vanity Fair. It talks about when the Lord was here on earth. And he draws the image saying that Satan took him through Vanity Fair. And he showed him the nations. He showed him the pleasures. He showed him the power. He showed him all that the world has to, has to offer. We, we get a temptation to this here and a temptation to this here and a temptation to this here. Satan said, I'm going to lay it all out. Here's everything the world has to offer. And Jesus, it is yours if you'll bow down and worship me. Imagine that. The whole fair, it's all yours. All you have to do is bow down. And what did Jesus do? said, I don't want to buy anything here. Nice. 
And Satan makes the same offer. Not the whole thing. He knows he doesn't have to offer us the whole fare. But he goes to people in the earth today and he says, I'll give you this. All you have to do is bow down and worship me. All you have to do is drink the wine and let me lead you my direction. And so many today, including believers, are saying, I'll make that trade. I'll drink the wine of the world. I won't drink too much. I'll take a little bit, and I'll still try to keep myself serving the Lord to some degree. But in order to buy anything at the fair, we have to make that surrender to this world system, to Satan himself. In Revelation 18, as Scripture is talking about the fall of Babylon the Great, this utter destruction, this this catastrophic judgment, verse 4 says, there's a cry that goes out. John says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Come out of her, my people. That's the call to us today. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that true and righteous are your judgments. That you will judge this world system. And the smoke of the burning will arise forever and ever. And Father, we worship you for your just judgment. Father, we are sobered to think of how easily we fall for the lies of this world. One day it will become clear that all of this is temporary. All of it will be dissolved. It will come to mean nothing and less than nothing. Lord, we can lose sight of that today. We get so tied up in the things that last only a little while. And we spend so much of our precious resources you've given us, our time and our love and our attention and our loyalty and our devotion on the things of this world, on things that will one day burn up. Father, forgive us, guard us, help us to say no. To respond how Jesus Christ said, how how Jesus Christ responded. We don't want to buy anything here. We're saving up for a greater treasure. We are laying up treasure in a place where it will not rust, it will not corrupt. Father, help us to have that spirit. And help us to see those around us who are drunk with the pleasures and sins of this world who have been blinded to their lost state, and may we have mercy and compassion on them, and may we speak the truth to them. Knowing that in many cases, they will be unwilling to listen, or it may take much time, 
and much investment and much prayer to open their eyes. But Lord, help us see their lost state. Help us to be part of your work of saving them from the fire that's coming. Father, thank you that you are going to destroy this world. And you're going to make a new and better world. Thank you for the wonderful plans you have in store. But we know that before all of the joy and all of the wonder of the new Jerusalem and the new earth and the new heaven and all of those great things, there is this utter destruction. And we need to bear it in mind. We need to live in light of it. So help us to do that, we ask. We love you. Pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Toward the hope of our high calling, toward the promise we've received. Thank you for listening. If you have questions about your relationship with God, or you would like to know more about the ministry of Good News Baptist Church, please visit us online at goodnewsbaptist.org or call us at 757-488-3241. We encourage you to share this message with others. We trust your heart was challenged as you listened, and God's Word has had an impact on your life, as together we strive to show forth the path of life. Press on.